again if you're visiting with us. My name is Mark. <laughs> yes, so it's, it's so good to do every year the remembrance thing. You know, I just uh, mentioned in the first service, and I say it hesitantly a little bit, but, you know, um, there's a series on Netflix, it's called World War II in Color, and it goes right from the very beginning and what started it, all of that. It's a documentary, it's 22 hours long, different, uh, like, I think about 20 or 22 different uh, segments, but very interesting. And you watch the advancement of the military and, you know, the technology advancing and uh, the history of it all. It's, it's, I watched it once and then I turned and watched it again. It was, I found it so interesting. But if you're going to watch it with your kids, it's great. Great lessons and stuff like that. But maybe watch a little bit ahead. And just, just, you know, because it's, it's a little bit gruesome at different times and stuff. But it's true. It's history. It's what happened in war. And war is ugly. And remembering it is a good thing. And uh, really being thankful for that we have been able to enjoy peace. You know, we don't have to worry about the bombs going off all around us. To go, to be uh, middle school, you're dismissed at this time. I was never any good at that. When I did announcements, it was on the sheet, and I never remembered to do it. Ever. <laughs> so anyways, that's interesting to look at. So, Father, we thank you for the freedoms we enjoy. I pray that none of us will ever take for granted, Lord God, the freedoms that we have. And I pray that you would give us the wisdom on how we can keep our freedoms, Father God. We pray for our leadership of our world, the leadership of this country, Father God, the leadership of the province and of our city. We pray that you would draw them to yourself, Father God. We come against the strongholds over our country, over our city. And we just tear that down in Jesus' name and pray, Lord God, as we intercede that we can push back the powers of darkness and uh, see your hand move in an incredible way in our city. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in 1717, King Louis XIV of France died. And preferring to be called Louis the Great, he was uh, the monarch who declared, I am the state. His court was most magnificent in Europe, and his funeral was a, a crazy, spectacular thing. And uh, in the church where the ceremony was to be perf performed, his body laid in a golden casket. And to dramatize his greatness, orders had been given to the church that uh, it would be very dimly lit and with only one special candle set above the coffin. And thousands of people were in attendance at this uh, funeral and they waited in silence the bishop was just about to speak and he reached down and he snuffed out the camera or the camera snuffed out the candle and he said only God is great and what a great thing for a bishop to say and have the guts to do that only God is great no matter what amazing spectacular thing that we can conjure up in our imagination it is no comparison to the greatness of God and only God is great, and it's our responsibility as his ambassadors here on this earth today to represent him well. 
I pray that when you leave here this morning, that this fact will be burned deep within your heart, uh, that we are called, all of us, we're called to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Christ. The Apostle Paul, he's writing a letter to the Philippian church here, and he's encouraging them with this challenge, to live a life that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we're going to see what that means as we go along here. And so Paul says, Dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you. And now that I am away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Hold firmly to the word of life, and then on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run, my race in vain, I run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. I want all of you to share in that joy. The last month when I was preaching, we saw, you know, really the most amazing display of humility uh, in a surrendered life, and it was surrendered to the Father and for the Father's will, and that surrendering was done by Jesus Christ himself. The Apostle Paul's working hard in this letter to help these people understand that the, uh, the power there is in humility, which in turn produces unity and love in the church, which will testify to the world around them that they truly are children of the one and true living God. The Apostle's challenge to these people is a challenge for us here today. And he says, or Gordon Fee, he says that nothing can frustrate the advance of the gospel more in Christian communities' effectiveness and in their witness for Christ than internal unrest among believers. He says the gospel is all about reconciliation and an unreconciled people do not advertise it well. Paul recognized this much, much more than, uh, uh, much more clearly than the contemporary Christians did, and he devoted a lot of uh, his writings, his letters to this matter, and especially in Romans and First Corinthians, and then here in Philippians is no exceptions. He says, above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about. Uh, good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one purpose and, or one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Paul is urging the Philippian people to get their corporate act together with a common mindset and mutual love for the sake of the gospel getting out into the city of Philippi. And Paul is coming to the main part of this letter right in these verses here. And uh, this is his personal appeal to them as their beloved brother and mentor from a prison in Rome. 
And as Paul is writing to them, he wants them to know that he's not bitter about his present circumstances. Even though the people are somehow making things more difficult for Paul as he's in prison, he's demonstrating to them that his understanding is an eternal understanding. He has an eternal purpose, and he understands that. And while he awaits his trial and his potential execution, and we see this when he says that, I want you to know, my dear brothers and sisters, that everything that has happened to me here has happened to spread the good news. The Apostle Paul is encouraging them to live together as citizens of heaven in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ so that when he hears about them, he'll know that they are standing firm together in one spirit. They're struggling together as one for the sake of the gospel because there is real opponents and forces that are trying to harm them. And the biggest problem with the Philippian church is not with an outright division going on, but it's just this little internal unrest, you know, with selfish ambition, unhealthy comparisons, competition, complaining, and arguing. And considering the Philippians' present situation, the main reason that Paul is appealing to them here is because he's worried that they will not be able to stand firm under the suffering and persecution unless they do it together. And we have the mindset of leaving no man behind. The key to the unity is for the Philippians to be a church that lives as a community that's worthy of the gospel of Christ. And worthy of the gospel of Jesus who saved them through his humility, obedience, and love for others. In order that they might become children of God who reflect God's image in the same way that Jesus demonstrated it himself. Paul's wanting them to recognize that they are representatives of Jesus to the people in Philippi, just like we are the representatives of Jesus in this city in which we're living. Paul says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and purpose. He says, you must have the same attitude as Christ had. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God was something to cling to. He didn't think that though he was God, that he didn't use it to his own advantage. In order to live this kind of a sacrificed life, we can see that it's going to take an effort on our part. It's going to take what's called discipline. And did you know that God has even taken care of that for us? It's amazing. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. This does not mean that we just now we can just sit back and grab the channel changer and everything's going to change. It takes an effort on our part. It's like the priests who are carrying the Ark of the Covenant. You know, as they come up to the edge of the water, they didn't stand there with the Ark on their shoulder and just stand there and wait for the waters to part. There always seems to be an act of faith on our part. You know, and as we're allowing the Spirit to lead us, that's the secret to it. Like when Peter, you know, getting out of the boat... You know, he says, Jesus, tell me to come to you. He asked Jesus to ask him to come or tell him, command him to come to him. 
You know, and then he had to step out of the boat by faith. He didn't just jump out of the boat. And the, just like the priests here, you know, uh, it takes an effort for us, and it took an effort on the priest's part. And it's a good example. It says that the priests will carry the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth. As soon as their feet touch the water, the flow of the water will be cut off upstream, and the river will stand up like a wall. Their feet had to touch the water. They had to do their part. Peter could not have walked on water had he not got out of the boat. It is very clear by scripture that God has given us everything that we need to be the representatives that he has called and ordained for us to be. So it's like this. I don't know about you, but over the years, I have tried several times to join a gym and uh, buy a membership and get into shape and change this physical body. And you know, like, it's been a while. <laughs> Quite a while. You're saying, no kidding, Pastor. <laughs> but you know, I buy a membership and then, you know, and back then pay for a year because it's cheaper than going by the month. So I'd buy a year membership and I'd be working. I'd have enthusiasm. I'd be working out. I'd go for one month, two months, and early in the mornings. But as time went on, all of a sudden this got a little bit old. And getting up in the morning and it's 30 below outside, and you're thinking, ah. And then, so this would wear, and then over the time, nothing would change. You know, and time goes on, and I spend more time uh, being frustrated with the money that I spent that I'm not even using. Now imagine now that if I was in this gym, and at the end of the year, I went to the, the owner of the gym, and I said, hey, I got this membership here. I bought it a year ago, and look, nothing's changing. And uh, I want my money back. Imagine how that conversation would go. Yeah. You know, for too many of us as Christians, believing in Jesus, like holding our gym membership card and expecting rock-hard abs without any change in our diet and expecting uh, things to change without exercise and without going to the gym... And Paul here, he, he's in these scriptures, he's applauding these people because he says that he's commending them and praising them for their faith is genuine because when he's not around, you know, he sees that their applause are for, from, they're looking to heaven for their applause. And he's urging them to do something that most Christians are struggling to do or simply refuse to do. And he says to them, he says, dear friends, you always followed my instructions when I was with you, and now that I'm away, it is even more important. Work hard to show the results of your salvation, obeying God with, uh, and deep, with deep reverence and fear, for God is working in you, giving you the desire, to do, to desire and the power to do what pleases him. To be a Christian means that we're called by God to work out our salvation. We have been freely given by him. And not so God will be work at work in us, at work in us, but because God is at work in us to give us the desire and the power to fulfill his good works. Ephesians 2.10 says that for we are God's masterpiece. He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do good things, the good things that he has planned for us long ago. And Gordon Fee says that we, we are not those who have been begrudgingly caught by God. 
so that we obey basically out of fear and trembling for what might happen if we do otherwise. But rather, being Christ's means to be converted in the true sense of the word, to have our lives invaded by God's Holy Spirit, who creates in us a desire toward him that prompts godly behavior in the first place. Working out our salvation is not simply the good that, uh, of uh, is not simply good for our own maturity, which it is good for our own maturity. It makes the gospel attractive to other people because they not only hear about it from us, they also see its power at work in us. Amen. As Christians, you and I must take responsibility for you know, why people don't seem to be drawn to Jesus very much. There's many reasons why, but at least one of them is that they constantly see us holding up our gym membership cards and inviting them to join our gym because it's such a great gym and it'll change their lives. But they don't want to join. And you know why? Because they see us. They see us having our precious gym membership and it's made no difference on our health. And here Paul is giving us a priceless insight into the power of the gospel. It's not simply something that we tell people. It's something that we show them. The gospel is spoken and is to be spoken and heard as well as to be lived and seen. Peter in his letter to the Christians, he says, Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give, give honor to God when he judges the world. That's quite a text. We're not simply to tell people about the beauty and the power of God that's working in our lives, but we're meant to show them as it is at work in our lives. As much as we are to be concerned about what people hear from us about Jesus, we are to be that concerned about what they see in us. So Paul says to the Philippians, he says, do everything without grumbling and arguing so that uh, you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. You know, why does God call this generation of his day a warped and crooked generation? He's referring to a people whose moral compass is either broken or it's just simply discarded. They use any means to get what they want. They cheat, steal, kill, and they use other, uh, other exploits uh, and they exploit anyone because the end justifies the means. And if they get what they want, it doesn't matter how they got it. These people are ones that say it's just business. Or it's nothing personal. You know, think about this. Tim Keller, he talks about why a solar system is a, sol is a system. It's because all the planets around, uh, revolve around the sun. Can you imagine what would happen if a planet refused to revolve around the sun? Can you imagine what would happen if each planet demanded that all the other planets revolved around it? This is the generation we live in. And these are the times that we live in. This is the age we live in. And I think we all know it. 
Human history is the story of a world of planets desperately trying to take the place of the sun. And it is perfectly natural that a crooked and warped generation in a world of planets trying to replace the sun, that we would find constant grumbling and arguing. Now, if you don't think that this generation of our, uh, is a generation of arguing and grumbling, you're probably not on Facebook. <laughs> you know, it's, it's where all of our grumbling and arguing has been preserved for generations to come. You can't hide it anymore. It's all there for everyone to see. This generation has been described as the golden age of grumbling. An arguing heart is equally unattractive because it's a restless heart. It is a heart that is rooted in the sense of entitlement that says, I deserve more than I've been given. It is impossible for hearts like this to be grateful for what they have because their minds are more occupied with what they don't have. What went wrong? And who's to blame for this dissatisfaction? Because there's always somebody to blame. This is why James, in his letter to Christians, says, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to get it and take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. Even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. And you might think that grumbling and arguing, you know, this is just a petty thing, and that there's got to be more serious things that we can think about and concentrate on in life and to be concerned about. But Paul recognizes, he knows the destructive power of grumbling and arguing in a community. He knows how people who grumble and argue completely destabilize the health of any gathering of people who have a common purpose. Whether it is an office where you work, or it's on a team that you might play on, like a hockey team or whatever, or a church. In a church, grumbling and arguing creates an atmosphere that undermines the power of the gospel. People may hear something beautiful, but they see something ugly. And it will put them off unless we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And as Paul says, then we will shine among them like stars in the sky as we hold firmly to the word of truth. So how do we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? You know, we've got a little bit of a clue about it in the second psalm where David warns the kings of the earth and he says to them, serve the Lord with reverent fear and rejoice with trembling. He's warning the kings to recognize there, are, there is a king that is greater than they are. And they need to fear him and celebrate his rule with trembling and it's a wise thing for them to do it. Fear and trembling is the feeling of awe. It's very difficult to be grumbling and arguing when we're in awe. Paul fixes the Philippians' eyes on the person of God, and this makes it very difficult to take seriously the things that they're grumbling and arguing about. And that is why the songwriter writes, Turn your eyes upon Jesus, 
look full into his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. All our grumbling and arguing is a sign that our souls are hungry, and we will never satisfy our hunger with the superficial things of this world. Never. It's our soul's way of telling us that we're hungry for the word of life. Our diet is weak, and we need to feed on Jesus the bread of life so that he can satisfy our deepest hungers with his healing power, with his love, and with his grace. As we move in the world with our deepest hunger satisfied in Jesus Christ, Paul says that we will shine like the stars in the world. The beauty of Christ will shine through us, and we will be seen as beautiful people with beautiful lives that draw admiration and attention of a world that is seeing the power of the gospel working out in our lives, not just hearing it. Paul points to the Philippians to the day of Christ's return. He says, hold firmly to the word of life. Then on the day of Christ's return, I will be proud that I did not run the race in vain and that my work was not useless. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God. Just like your faithful service is an offering to God. I want to draw our attention to that statement. Just like your faithful service is an offering to God. Our service in the church is an offering to God. Anything we're doing in the church, uh, we do it as an offering to God. It's never a vain thing to to minister in the church. And there's so many areas of ministry in the church. In the church, we need you at a season like this because there's much need. So just like your faithful service is an offering to God, and I want all of you to share in that joy, yes, you should rejoice, and I will share your joy. The day of Christ is like a day of judgment, and it's a date when Christ will return and set all things right. It should be a day that we fear, but the Apostle Paul here, his language, it seems to be a day that he can look forward to without fear. It looks to Paul to be a day that he will be able to boast that he did not run his race, the labor in vain. And what does he mean? Paul is confident in the day of Christ because he knows that even as we work out our salvation with fear and trembling, God himself is at work in us. He says that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Praise God for that. Grace, 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 he will bring it to completion in all of us. And this is the good news of the gospel from the beginning to the end, God working in us. He begins and we respond to him as we are awakened and empowered by him. Grace can be a traumatic experience as we're awakened and empowered by him. And it can be a, a dramatic experience because we must face the reality that we have all turned into fairly selfish people. We have to give up trying to change ourselves and we have to trust ourselves into the hands of the divine surgeon. And we have to hold on to his words of life. Grace is God's work in us. It's a hard work of change, but it's a good work of change. And as he turns our grumbling into gratitude, 
and are arguing to peacemaking, and as we are a salvation together, we can really become the people who shine like stars so that a watching world can be drawn to the one who shines on us. And maybe it will be that people will see the beauty in our lives and turn to the one who is truly holy and truly, truly beautiful. Even during what appears to be very inconvenient circumstances for the Apostle Paul as he's in this prison writing this letter, even in the midst of that, his relationship with God does not change. He says it doesn't matter whether their motives are false or genuine. The message of Christ is being preached either way. So I rejoice and I will continue to rejoice. They don't know what people were doing to make his prison stay more difficult. But people were doing things that were making his life even more miserable than it was the fact that he was in prison. And his whole attitude was that it didn't matter. The gospel was being preached either way and that's all that mattered. You know, maybe Habakkuk had a little bit of influence in Paul's life when the thinking and his attitude of difficult times because Habakkuk says, though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines and though the olive crops fail and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet will I rejoice in the Lord, I will be joyful always. This clicker's amazing. Good thing I'm going there next. <laughs> this is not sour grapes, Gordon Fee says, that Habakkuk's speaking out of here. Nor is he making the best out of a bad situation or delighting in feeling bad. This has to do with true faith, based as it is on the unshakable foundation of the work of Christ, both past and future. And since Paul is so completely at home in the world of Scripture as God's very words, and since he really believes it true that to live is Christ and to die is gain, he simply expresses this, his, you know, this confidence in a thoroughly biblical way when he says, for everyone here, including the whole palace guard, knows that I am in these chains because of Christ. This is not the Rome Hilton in a room with a view that the Apostle Paul is staying in here. And yet his, his perspective never changes. And his perspective is the right perspective. Today the concern is with our behavior as a church. With our succeeding where Israel failed. We can do it. You know, like the church worldwide, we can do it. The underlying plan in all of this is God's own character as it is now reflected in us who bear his likeness as we live out our life of the future in the present age right here, right now. Only as we reflect God's own likeness will our evangelism be worth anything at all in terms of its aim and in terms of its success. We are the representatives of God we're the representatives of God in our homes to our kids, to our grandkids, to anybody that comes into our home. We're representatives of God at work. We're representatives of God in the Parkland Mall parking lot. That's quite a parking lot. And it'd be a good one to be a representative of God in. 
I don't know about where you're at this morning in your life, but I know where I'm at. <laughs> I know where, you know, what I must do. You know, through this last year and just about coming on two years, I've done a lot of repenting because of my attitude. You know, even some of the things that I have said, I thought, oh, I can't say those things. You know, and I've had to do a lot of repenting and praise God for his grace. You know, I can just see him rolling his eyes, oh, again. But God is a good God that we serve. Amen. You know, so like working on this text, it went where I didn't expect it to go. You know, I was expecting to carry on from this where we were the last time I preached, on, when I preached on unity. So I thought, okay, I'll carry on with this one here. And it just, what it did was it started out in, where we started last time was in verse 27. And it's talking about this very thing, unity and one spirit, one mind. And then down through Jesus being the example for us and him being exalted. And then it picks up again on the unity thing, and that's where we're at this morning. And, and I just, I believe that it's where, where we're at. And I believe it's what God is saying and what he's wanting to say. And it's amazing. Like, I'm a slow learner. You see, when I'm putting these words down here, I don't even hear it or see it or understand it until, like, yesterday. And I've been working on it for two weeks. And, but, you know, it's amazing. We're representatives of God. We're his ambassadors in the earth. You know, like the children of Israel, they were representatives of God to the nations around them. That was God's purpose. He was taking them into the promised land. As they were going in and conquering the land, you know, when they come out of the promised land, they were about to turn to go in there, and God says, no, the sins of the Amorites are not, the cup is not full yet. So God is waiting, you know, and then so when it's time for the children of Israel to go in and conquer the land, it's judgment that God that is taking place here. And God's got a plan for Israel to go in there and, you know, clean up the land and him, him rule. And then the nations around them were to see the righteousness of Israel and the God that they serve. And they failed at that because they didn't continue to obey that generation that went into the promised land the first time. Amazing stuff that they did. It's just great reading. They failed right off the bat because they didn't pray. They come in and, and did Jericho. And then there was a little town of Ai. And then he says, oh, we don't need to send everybody out. Just a few guys go up. They didn't ask God at all. And just a few guys that went up, next thing you know, they're running around, taking off back and being defeated. And then... Uh, Joshua's on his face. He's crying out to God, and God says, what are you doing, Joshua? Get up. And he says, there's sin in the camp. And so if they would have sought God before they went, they would have been able to deal with what took place in Jericho. But they didn't seek God, and they failed there. Then he learned a lesson to press on from then on. And you know, a while later, they, they didn't seek the Lord, and then they took in others that caused them grief to this day. But it's seek the Lord. You know, eat on the word of life. And it says the world, as our community sees a life that's satisfied with the bread of life. You know, we're, because when we're gnawing on the bread of life, Jesus Christ, you know, healing takes place in our lives. Deliverance takes place in our lives. Because the Holy Spirit judges the thoughts and the intents of our heart and it whirls down deep in our heart. And he doesn't tear us apart. It's one little thing at a time, and he ministers to us. You know, over the years, I've been to the altar many times being delivered, being set free, forgiving, 
It's just God's grace and the way he works. And as we're feeding on the word of life, that's what takes place in our lives. And then the world looks at us and they see us as bright, shining stars in the night. And that's pretty spectacular. You know, so I want to encourage you this morning, if you've been very, like, you know, a number of, a few people have uh, left our church. A few people have left other churches and have come to our church. Like, there's just this little bit of movement going on in the churches, and it's like, just seek the Lord. Don't worry, this thing is going to be over one day, and we can look back, and we can take our thing and say, how did we do, you know? And uh, God is good, and he's gracious, and you know, he cares. And so I want to encourage you that we are representatives of God. Wherever we go, whatever we do. And so we want to make sure we don't ever forget that. And don't think the little things don't matter. Because the little things do matter. And uh, people are watching. And so as representatives, Father, I pray, Lord God, that you would be with us as your body. Help us, Father, to represent you well. Help us, Lord God, to really be aware in our spirits. I pray that you would just prick our conscience, Lord, when we're having a bad attitude, when we're maybe getting angry about something or we're even getting angry at someone. I pray that you would just convict us, Father God. Convict our heart and help us to recognize then it's just a matter of repenting and standing up and being just as justified and just as if we'd never sinned. Lord, you're gracious, you're good, and I just pray you bless your people and help us, Lord God, to walk out this walk that you've laid out before us. Draw us to your word because it is so key. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you go.